Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip bag nor shoes and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house you enter first, say peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. At the end of chapter nine, where we left off in our study last week, the Galilean ministry of Jesus came to an official end. You'll recall from some of our former studies that the ministry of Jesus really took place in two areas, two localities. The one was in the northern part of Israel called the Galilee region where the Sea of Galilee was and it was the towns and villages surrounding it. And then the other portion or part took place in Jerusalem, which was way down in the southern part of the land of Israel. And those two regions were separated by that mass of land that's known in the Bible as Samaria. And as Jesus has now concluded the portion of his ministry that's taking place in the northern part, he turns his face and attention now towards Jerusalem and the remainder of his ministry will be Jesus moving systematically southward through the land of Israel, making his way now to Jerusalem, where then he will uh, lay down his life and fulfill the ministry uh, of the cross and redemption that he ultimately came to do. So as we now come into chapter 10 and we move into this new arena or, or portion of Jesus' ministry of him moving to the south, we see Jesus going through these towns and villages and the teachings and things that take place over these chapters happen as he's moving through the region. And now his agenda is twofold. Because whereas where in Galilee, he was primarily focused on preaching the kingdom of God. Now he's primarily focused on two things. One being preaching the kingdom of God, but the other being preparing his disciples and his apostles for the ministry that he's going to leave behind for them to accomplish in the birthing of the church. And so we see a new dynamic in a lot of the things that Jesus is doing and the things that he is teaching because he has that uh, added agenda of also equipping the disciples for the work that they will begin to do. The passage before us begins with Jesus sending 70 new people or new workers into the labor and he sends them forth two by two to go before him into all of the villages that he himself is going to go into. So if you add the 70 to the 12 that he has already sent, he now has 41 teams of people, two by two, that are canvassing the land from north to south, preparing the way and making arrangements so that when Jesus comes, he can reach the maximum number of people possible. I find it interesting that God likes to send people forth in pairs. You would think that he'd be able to cover a whole lot more ground if he just sent them one by one and gave them the message and said, hey, if you go one at a time, you can reach that much more territory. But God doesn't like to do things that way. He always sends two by two. And I believe that the reason for it, as we just look at it through scripture and we see the effect of it, is first of all, very practically, is that two are better than one in terms of productivity. There's not a job in the world that, that one person can do better than two people, especially when it comes to the context of kingdom things. I imagine brushing your teeth uh, is, is not, doesn't fall under that banner, but I think in the context of spiritual things uh, and biblical things, God likes to send people forth two by two. Um, also, another reason that he likes to do that is for accountability. 
is that when there are two people laboring side by side, then there's an accountability that automatically takes place between them. You're not going to get distracted and and turn turn aside into sinful things or spend your time uh, in compromise when you've got someone else there with the same motive and drive holding you up and keeping your eyes focused where they're going to be. And the third reason, I believe, is just for humility, is that when there's two being sent to do that job, it keeps one person from being too puffed up and too magnified. God has a way of putting people together for ministry in such a way that their gifts complement one another, and that where one person is weak, another is strong, and vice versa. And it keeps them on a, on a track of keeping the main thing the main thing and the main theme the main theme, and that is Jesus Christ. And so for productivity, accountability, and for humility, he sends them forth two by two. You'll notice in verse two that it begins with the word therefore, that he appointed these 70 along with the other 12 to go every place that he himself would go. And then it says, therefore, he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is that there are many more places that he himself would want to go, but he will only go to the places that these 41 teams can canvas and visit. It says that he wants to go to those places. He sends them forth, but then it says, therefore, pray that God would raise up more laborers to the harvest because truly the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. And what we see in this uh, is is a couple of things. First of all, we see that um, there is a calling and an appointment that's attached to the ministry that Jesus is calling these people to. He is not here simply looking for volunteers. If he was, then he would have at his disposal an innumerable multitude of people that he could send forth. You know that by this time, the number of people that are following the ministry of Jesus, even from place to place, is in the thousands. There were 5,000 men alone, excluding women and children, that were present when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And his popularity is so great at this time, and the lives that have been infected are so many, that if he said, can I just have a showing of hands for volunteers of those that would want to serve in this way to go forth and be ambassadors for me. He could have as many teams as he wants. But of the thousand, what he finds is he finds 70 that in them he sees that these people will rightly represent the kingdom and the king that they are proclaiming and that will be effective in bringing forth uh, the message that, that is there. And so there's a calling attached to this sending. And that's always the case in anything that we're going to do in service to the Lord, that there's a calling, that there's a sense deep within that God is putting his finger upon our lives and he's given us a vision for a particular area of ministry and that he's the one that's sending us into that harvest. Now, the qualifications that he's going to give in the list that we uh, read of things that he's going to say to them concerning the way in which they're to represent him as he goes, those things are given to them for this particular mission. In other words, these things are not necessarily a universal qualifying list of things, attributes, because later on when he sends the 12 again at the end of his ministry after the cross, he's going to say, now take a bag. Now, take money in your purse. Now, if you don't have a sword, take a sword. You're going to need it. You know, and he changes kind of the things at that time. And in the New Testament context, the qualifications can be somewhat different or adjusted based upon how God wants to use us in whatever particular arena that he chooses to use us within his harvest. But it's interesting to me to note the things that Jesus says to them that are his requirements for this particular time and for this particular ministry. And as we see what they are, we understand that they are somewhat universal uh, in their importance. And so what are the attributes uh, uh, for this mission that he's sending? The first one is given to us in verse two, and that is that these men that are sent forth, that they are to understand the mission that they are on. That their presence as they go is to be accompanied with prayer and a vision for the harvest. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And so what Jesus sees in these people that he's desiring to use is that these are people that will pray 
and that they're people that understand the mission and the why behind the what of what they are doing. In other words, that this is a harvest. They are going primarily for the sake of seeing souls converted and turned to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Hearts prepared for when he will come and establish his kingdom within their lives. And so he wants people that have a vision for what the mission ultimately is. The second attribute that he's looking for, and we see it in verse three, is he's looking for people that are willing to walk by faith. He says to them something that uh, if he said it to me, I'm not sure I would be comforted. He said, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Now, if you can just picture in your mind exactly what that looks like. I mean, go down to your local zoo and you see the wolf pen. And then you go over to the petting area where they let kids touch the animals and you see the lamb section. And then you take one of those lambs or a group of them and you put them in with the wolves in the wolf section. And what would you expect to see? You can watch that on YouTube probably because, you know, everybody would be very interested in the outcome of that. And yet Jesus is looking at these people and what he's basically saying to them is that I'm putting you in a situation where you will have half the intelligence and you'll be ill-equipped to deal with the type of people that I'm sending you out to be with. And that's going to mean that it's going to require a little bit of faith. And what that faith is, is not in the fact that the wolves will not eat them necessarily, but their faith is in the fact that it is Jesus who's the one that's appointing them as the lambs among the wolves. And if he is the faithful and good shepherd that the Bible declares that he is, then he's able to put a lamb in the presence of a wolf and he's able to preserve that lamb. But it's going to take some faith on their part to go into these environments where they feel ill-equipped and unprepared and yet to see God work through their lives in such a way that there'll be success in what they're doing. The third attribute that he's looking for in these people that he he commands them is he wants them to live in simplicity. He says, don't take with you a bag, don't take a purse, don't take an extra pair of shoes, um, but just take the things that you have. And his desire is that they will be able to travel fast and travel light, that they won't be bogged down with with extra baggage and worried about, okay, there's you know a sale in uh, Capernaum. And so as we pass through, we could just pick up a couple of extra things and we'll store these on the way. You know, he wants people that are focused on the mission at hand and that are willing to, to move in simplicity and live in simplicity. Um, the fourth attribute that he gives, it's also in verse uh, four, is that he wants people that are undistractable. He says, salute no man by the way. That is, as you're moving from village to village and you see people and they greet you and want to have a conversation with you, don't get uh, tied up in, in those small things that will be a distraction for you on your mission. Don't let that happen. In that culture, that there was much uh, uh, more interaction between strangers than what we experience in ours. You know, we walk past someone on the sidewalk and we might give them a quick nod or we might say, hi, how are you? Um, but if they respond and start to have a conversation with us, we, we get a little bit, no, no, I didn't really want you to respond. <laughs> don't, don't answer the question, uh, you know, because we don't do that. But they did, you know, and Jesus is saying, uh, keep your mind on the mission and don't be distracted by the things that will happen to you uh, there. The fifth attribute is given in verses five and six, and that is that he's looking for people in this particular instance that have a certain amount of discernment. He says that when you come to a house, the first house that you enter, say to that house, peace be upon this house. And if a a son of peace lives there, then your peace will abide upon it. Now, I read that, especially as a new believer, and I say, what in the world is he talking about? Because that, that, that's something invisible. I mean, peace is an intangible uh, substance. You know, we know what it is. We can define it. We, we can feel it. But what does he mean by that your peace would rest upon this house? In the book of Ephesians and also in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says to you and I, he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And what that means basically is that when you and I give our lives to Christ, his peace comes into us. Jesus said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives. And so his peace is in our lives. It's there. It's part of us. And what happens is that as we walk through the world, The peace of God is part of what leads us. And how it leads us is that there are times things happen that our peace leaves us. We're about to make a a very important decision about maybe a a change of life or an important purchase or, you know, something that concerns our family and affects our future. 
And we begin to take steps down a certain path, but as we do, our peace departs from us. And it's not just the anxious, normal peace of change of life, but there's something more to it. There's an unsettledness that happens. There's something spiritual about it. Well, the Bible teaches that we're to listen to that voice and we're to let the peace of God rule in our hearts and call safer out. And what he's saying to these people is that you're going to have to monitor your peace to a degree as you go from village to village where you stay and is your peace abiding in it. You're going to have to learn how to follow that and understand it. And so there's a degree of discernment that's necessary in this ministry. And then finally, in verses 7 and 8, the uh, sixth qualification that he gives is that they're to have thick skin and a strong stomach. (laughs) And that is, of course, that they were to eat the things that were set before them uh, and, and that they were to deal with the circumstances in the places that they were and that they weren't to move from house to house trying to better their 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 situation, but they were to receive what comes and take it as the will of God, whether it was where they were or what they were fed. Uh, and that was the terms of this. Now, what's interesting to me is all of those six things that Jesus was looking for in these 70 people that he sent out, none of them have very much at all to do with the mission that was at hand. The mission that he was sending them out for, that's given in verse nine. And in verse nine, he's, here's the mission, just one thing. He says, wherever you go, heal the sick and then preach to the, them the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God uh, is, is near at hand, uh, that the kingdom of God has come near unto you and basically preparing the way for the fact that Jesus will soon come. It was a very simple ministry and a very simple message. It relied upon two things. Number one, the power from heaven would flow through them to fulfill the ministry of healing that he was going to perform because man can't heal man. God can only heal man. And then number two, they would be obedient then to follow that healing manifestation with the message that the Savior who heals not just the body, but the soul is soon to come into this region and let everyone in this region be prepared for him when he comes so that the maximum amount of people and fruit can come from uh, Jesus passing through this place. So what we see in this passage is we just kind of encapsulate these nine verses is that we see Jesus operating in the gift of administrations. We see in Romans chapter 12 that there's a list of gifts that God gives to us so that we can serve him in the proper way. The gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching and the gift of administration and the gift of serving and the gift of uh, governing and and the gift of mercy. And there's a whole list of seven uh, ministry gifts that are listed there in, in Romans chapter seven. And and, and each one of us has strengths and weaknesses when we look at our lives spiritually in the context of that list. But when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see that all seven of those things were in full and complete operation as an example uh, of what they are. And so we see Jesus prophesying, and we see Jesus teaching, and we see Jesus showing mercy and so on down the list. But here we see Jesus administrating. And it's interesting to me to notice that the kingdom that he was establishing was very organized. Sometimes we think that Jesus didn't have a plan, that he would wake up, pray, and then he would just do whatever during that day. But what we see here is that he absolutely had a plan. This is very ordered. It's very calculated. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's to do. And so we see Jesus operating uh, within that. There's a method to the ministry, and also there's a model to the minister. This is the second time that Jesus is sending out a group of people. The first time it was the 12, this time it's the 70. And he gives to them basically the same set of instructions both times, which means he knows, God knows exactly what he's looking for in those people that he is desiring to use. And you say, okay, well, I look at this list and I look at my life and I look at the kingdom of God and I say to myself, where in the world do I fit? How does God and how would God ever want to use me in in my life? Because even looking at this, I say disqualified. Understand this, that with God, he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And what I've discovered is that so often a call is contingent upon willingness, not talent. That if any one of us here tonight is willing to go to God and say, God, here is the contents of my heart. And I'm willing that you should arrange things and arrange me the way you want me to be in order to serve your purposes. Then I'm willing to be obedient to whatever it is that you call me to do. That's the kind of surrender that he can then use and then send forth in whatever ministry he has made you for. And he found 70 
amongst all of those that were in that place that he could then use, and then he did. Well, then he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, but into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city, which cleaves on us or sticks to our feet, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Now that's the end of the message that they were to declare upon rejection. They were just to simply shake the dust off their feet and then look at the people of that city and say, know for a fact that the kingdom of God has come near. And that's it. He says then to them though, Jesus looks at those 70 and he says, now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to that city. I don't want you to say this to them, but this is what's going to happen to that city. Verse 12. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. He doesn't say unto you. That's, this isn't what he, they're not supposed to put on the sandwich board now and, and, and you know, start to declare fire and brimstone on these people. He, they're to, to limp, simply leave the door open, shake the dust off and say, the kingdom of God was here. And then they're to depart. But Jesus says, but it's gonna be more tolerable for Sodom. And then Jesus gives some examples. Verse 13, woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had repented or a great while ago repented sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were cities in in Syria outside of the borders of Israel. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Capernaum was the headquarters of the Galilean ministry of Jesus which are exalted to heaven because of that reason, shall be thrust down to hell. Now you say, what in the world is this? Because here are cities in Israel wherein Jesus performed ministry and where he was received by some of the people there. That now he's pronouncing this woe upon, saying that it's going to be worse for them than for outright pagan cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon up in Syria. How is that possible? that a city in Israel could face a stricter judgment than Sodom or Tyre. Here's why. Because Sodom and Tyre were simply doing what they were by nature. They were sinners. They had no light. But these cities in Israel were exposed to the greatest light the world has ever seen. The Son of God himself came and by miracle and message proclaimed a kingdom and a gospel of salvation that would take them out of paths of darkness and place them into paths of light. And for them to refuse that life, having seen who Jesus was and experienced the life that he gave, for them to reject it made them more guilty than Sodom and Gomorrah, who never had the kind of light that Israel had. And so Jesus says, woe unto you if you sin against light. I think about that in the context of the day of judgment. There are people that probably will be in heaven that will not have received Christ, that received a less Um, amount of light than others. Everyone will have a chance. But I think about the person who sits in church year after year, week after week, or even for their whole life, and they listen to the Bible taught, but yet they themselves will never repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I wonder, what will it be like in that day for that person who, as they watch the tape of their life, can hear over and over again the gospel and the warnings being played back over and over again? I would fear to be that person. Jesus says, he that hears you, hears me. And he that despises you despises me. And he that despises me despises him that sent me. So that's the commission or the ordination ceremony that Jesus gives to these 70 that he now sends out village by village. Well, now we jump time. And in verse 17, it says, and the 70 returned again with joy. There is no greater joy than to have your life used by God to serve his purposes. I don't think that there's a greater experience that a human being can feel than to be used by their creator to serve their creator in the thing that they, the person that they were created for. That's a great thing. Revelation chapter four, verse 11 says this. It says, and and this is the, the host of those that are in heaven worshiping the Lord. They say, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things 
and for your pleasure they are and were created. Now that is true in the context of all of creation, but it's also true in the context of the creature. That's us. That we exist ultimately to bring glory to God. That's what he made us for. We were made for his pleasure. And therefore, when we find ourselves serving the very purpose for which we are made, bringing God pleasure through the exercising of our gifts and bearing fruit for his kingdom, that's an incredible feeling. But furthermore, understand this. The Bible says that God the Holy Spirit indwells us, that he lives inside of us. And if God lives inside of us and he is pleased and feeling pleasure through what's going on in our lives, then it's inevitable that we're going to feel that pleasure as well. And there's no greater pleasure than to be serving God uh, in the thing that he made us to do, the feeling that we're doing exactly what we were made to be doing. And so it says that they rejoiced. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, Jesus is blessed that they're happy, but he redirects their joy because it's in the wrong place. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, that's an amazing scene if you think about it. You read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and you see what Satan once was and you see what caused his fall in rebellion and Jesus now testifying that like lightning he was cast out of heaven and he fell into the earth. Jesus saying, I saw that take place. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. I don't think that means that we're supposed to bring them into our church services and bite the heads off of them and demonstrate our faith that way. But he says, I give you power over those things and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, nevertheless, though you have power over the realms of darkness and though there's a protection upon your life, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in the power that God has given you in your life. Don't rejoice in the peripheral things that are the side salad bar of what we enjoy in this salvation, whether it's the authority that we have in the realms of darkness, or whether it's the gifts that we've been given to serve him or the effectiveness of our ministry or the peripheral blessings that he's allowed us to enjoy, maybe the things that we have in our lives or our family or those other things. He says, don't rejoice in those things, though they are a source of joy for us and a source of rejoicing. But Jesus says, let the supreme joy of your heart be in the fact that your names are written in heaven. There are two things that no Christian fully understands on this side of eternity. One of those things is heaven and the other one is hell. We have a glimpse of them in the scriptures. And we have a little bit of an understanding of what they are and what they mean. And, and we can understand the context of heaven and hell in our Christian knowledge and experience. But until we're there in heaven, we won't know what it truly is. The Bible says very little about it. And the things that it says rapture us in joy and, and in wonder as we realize what awaits us, the kingdom that's to come. But there's so little of it that's told. Because the Bible says that the earth is just the shadow that heaven is the reality. So there's so much more there even than there is here. The other is hell. To realize what it means to be totally separated from God forever. To understand what it means to have no light, not just externally to see with our eyes, but even internally. A weeping and a gnashing of teeth that comes not just from the pain that we're suffering physically, but from the knowledge of what we're not experiencing in terms of what we were made for. The torture of that is something that we can talk about and in poetry we can try to describe and relate it to pain that we've experienced, but we can't truly understand hell. But here's what happens as we walk with the Lord and we grow closer to him. We understand two things. Number one is we, we understand that regardless of what's in heaven, we don't deserve to be there. <laughs> that there's nothing in us at all that makes us attractive to him, wherein he would look in our lives and say, well, you're a good candidate and you know you were better than that guy and you didn't really oppress anybody and you weren't too greedy and you know you made it over the cover line of everyone else in generic sin and so yeah, why don't you come into our kingdom and you could be a part of our family. It doesn't work that way. You walk with the Lord and you, you get closer to him and you read his word. The closer you get to him, the more it reveals what's in our hearts. And the more that's revealed what's in our hearts, we say, woe is me. We realize, Lord, who am I? 
Who am I? We say like David did, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Lord, there's nothing attractive that's in us at all. And what we deserve, Lord, is to be separated from you for all of eternity. And the fact that we're not going to go to hell where we deserve to go, but rather we've been placed into your family and translated into the kingdom of light and we're going to be citizens of heaven. Lord, what, what is that? And as we grow in the realization of those two things, what happens is our hearts change from being concerned about the peripheral things. We say, okay, he's given me power in my life. Thank you, Lord. I, I'm grateful. I appreciate it. Lord, you've given me gifts and service. And Lord, you've blessed my life and you've given me a degree of stability. But Lord, none of those things even come close. They can't even touch, Lord. Just what you've done in taking my name and moving it from the column of condemned and placing it into the column of redeemed. And when we recognize the value of what we have in Jesus Christ because of what he did through the work of redemption on the cross, There is no greater joy that can touch the Christian's heart than to realize the great love that God has for us. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. Don't rejoice that you have power over hell. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. But then Jesus realizes these guys don't get it. And so he goes on to say in verse 21, it says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. He looked at all of those, the 70 that were gathered before him that were going, wow, and they're all sitting there practicing. They're going, in the name of Jesus, come out of him. you know. And and they're like maybe doing it different ways. And and Jesus is going, you guys got this all mixed up. you're, You're rejoicing in... In, 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 in the Tonka trucks, Fisher Price, you, don't, you haven't even touched the glory yet of what this whole thing is. And, and he realizes these, these guys are kids. They don't know what they've been given. We relate to that as parents, don't we? We see our kids and we're like, someday you'll get it. You'll figure it out what we're actually giving to you and giving up for you. They don't know it now. And that's what Jesus realizes. Lord, you've revealed these things unto babes and you've hidden them from the wise and prudent. And he says, all things are delivered to me from my father. And no man knows who the son is, but the father and who the father is, but the son and he to whom the son will reveal him. Isn't that glorious to think that God loves us enough that he doesn't even expect us to get it first. He just says, I'll give it to you. You'll catch up. And then he turned him unto his disciples and he said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. And I know for a fact, because we see it over and over again, that that went right over the top of their heads. They were like, "Uh uh-huh, thanks. Really appreciate it. Not having a clue of understanding yet what it was that was given to them. But they will, and they will understand. And so will we. And it's amazing what happens as we get closer to the Lord and we walk closer to him, the things that become less valuable in our comprehension and the one who becomes more valuable as we understand, God, you have given me in Jesus Christ and in the word of God and in the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life a treasure that is unspeakable. And thank you. Well, it says, he goes from there, verse 25. And it says, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so now it says here that a certain lawyer comes up and he asks him a very important question. He says, Master, what shall I do to inherit? That's a great question. It's asked of Jesus three times in the Bible. And I wonder if maybe there's someone here tonight that you have yet to ask that question to Jesus to say, what exactly is required of me to have eternal life? But what we see is that this lawyer comes to him and he's insincere in his approach. He's not coming because he really wants to know, but it says that he came to him tempting him. And what he's seeking to do is he's he's seeking to get Jesus to give an answer that's going to polarize him apart from uh, another group of people that maybe see things a different way. The rabbis would teach this is what's required. Other rabbis would teach that's what's required. And this man is trying to pin Jesus 
to make a profession of things that will put him on the side of one set of rabbis or another and in the process uh, detach himself from those that believe otherwise. But Jesus is way smarter than our schemes to try to put him on trial uh, and trap him into our positions of things and such. And so Jesus turns it around on the man like a wise politician would. And he says, let me answer that by asking you this, verse 26. He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Now that is the wisest way to get into any biblical conversation on any issue that you'll ever have with another person. Because people do this even to this day. Did he choose you or did you choose him? Can you lose your salvation or are you eternally secure? And people do these things and they try to polarize Christians and choose sides, pick a camp. Which scriptures do you stand on? And where, do you, where are you in all of these things? And the proper answer to any question about theological things is, what saith the scripture? And that's exactly what Jesus does with these men here. He says, what is written in the law? How do you interpret that? And so he answered and he said, you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he, Jesus, said unto him, you have answered right. You got this one right. You nailed it right on the noggin. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, this do and you shall live. Go do it and you'll have eternal life. Now, automatically, as soon as Jesus says this to the man, you go and do likewise, the tables have completely turned 180 degrees. Wherein this man came putting Jesus on trial, Jesus has now said something that puts this man on trial. Because the man hears the command of Christ, he sits for a minute and thinks about what Jesus says, and he replies with this question in verse 29. It says, but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? As if he had gotten the love God part right. You know, well, okay, I love God with all my heart, mind, and strength. I'm doing pretty good there, but I don't know about people. I love God, people, not so much. And so he looks at Jesus having now been searched by the word of Jesus. And he says, Lord, who is my neighbor that I'm called to love as I love myself? And so Jesus answers the question with a story in verse 30. And, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, this is kind of known in our minds as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But usually when Jesus tells a parable, he says he spoke a parable. Here he doesn't. It just says that Jesus answered and said a certain man. So we don't know if this might have happened. Nevertheless, it's a story intended to teach. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And so we see that there's a man in this instance and he departs from Jerusalem, which Jerusalem means the city of peace. And he's on his way to Jericho, which means a fragrant place. So he leaves the place of peace and he goes to the place of sensual indulgence. And on the way, while he's there, it says that he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his clothing, his covering, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And so this man is now on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he's wounded to the point where he can't move himself. He's naked and destitute of resources, and he's in need of help from someone else if he's going to survive. Well, it says that by chance there came down a certain priest that way. The priest's in Israel, represented the God of Israel. They represented the religion of Israel, the theology of Israel. They were the mediators, the go-between. And it says that a priest came that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then likewise, a Levite. The Levites represented the ritual of the land. They were the ones that held the handbook, the book of Leviticus. They were the one in charge of governing over and ordaining the way that the ceremonies took place and the various offerings and washings, the Levite representing the ritual of Israel. It says that when he was at the place, he came and looked on him and he passed by on the other side. So he goes one step further than the priest and observes the man, but realizing he can do nothing for him or that he's willing to do nothing for him, it says that he passed by on the other side. But then a certain Samaritan, now that word would sting in the ears of this man that was hearing. If you were here last week, I shared briefly about the 
deep animosity and hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. They looked at each other as invalids and there was a competition among them as to who were the true Jews and who, had, who could claim true rights to Jacob and to Abraham. And they hated each other. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans at all. And so when he hears the word Samaritan, this man, his blood would boil. So would probably the hearts of everyone that was there. It was ingrained in them. It was a racist issue. It says a Samaritan came and as he journeyed, he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And in the morning, so he spends the night with this man, allowing his whole plan in life to be interrupted. When he departed, he took out two pence. Two pence in in New Testament times was two days wages. So imagine what you make for a whole day of work. And then imagine committing two of them to take care of this man who's been wounded on your own dime. He took out two pence, two days work. And he gave them to the host of the inn. And he said unto him, take care of him. And whatsoever you spend more, When I come again, I will repay you. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. And so Jesus said unto him, go thou now and do likewise. And so we see this lawyer coming to Jesus and we see Jesus' response is that that your neighbor whom you are called to love as you love yourself is the person that you hate the most in the world presently now. The person that grates the most on you, that's the one that you're to actively show love to with what you do, not just what you say or what you profess. If you do this, then you will be loving your neighbor as yourself. There's some interesting dynamics that are taking place within this interaction and within the story that Jesus is uh, giving to this man. The key word in this whole segment of scripture from when the lawyer first approaches Jesus all the way to the end, verse 37. The key word in this whole passage is the word do. It shows up three times in the passage. It shows up, first of all, in verse 25, when the man says, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And then it shows up again in verse 28, when Jesus says, do this and live. That is, love, your, love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. Do this and live. And then it shows up again in verse 37. After defining who his neighbor is, he then says it again. Do this and live. Well, do what? What exactly is it that this man has to do if he's to obtain eternal life? Well, the answer is that he's to keep the whole law perfectly. That was the question, wasn't it? What must I do? And Jesus said, what is written in the law? And he said, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, you're right. And you say, wait a minute, that's not the law. The law is the 10 commandments. Have no other gods, no idols, worship God only, honor the Sabbath, honor your parents, don't steal, don't kill. We know the commandments. How is Jesus letting this guy off the hook for the 10 commandments and saying, if you just love God and love man, that that's enough. That's all you got to do. No, no, understand this is that if you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, then you are automatically going to be fulfilling the first four commandments. Because if you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, you're not going to have idols. You're not going to have other gods. You're going to keep holy as Sabbath and honor what he says. If you love man, the way that Jesus describes in the story of the Good Samaritan, even your enemies, then you're not going to murder him. You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to covet what he has. You'll be happy he has what he has. You're going to fulfill the last six commandments automatically by loving him. That's why Galatians says, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so what Jesus is laying upon this man's shoulders is that if you want eternal life based on doing, then that's going to require that you keep the whole law and that you keep it perfectly. And the weight of that answer rests heavy enough upon this man that he then turns back to Jesus and it says that he is seeking now to justify himself in this thing. And this man realizes after Jesus answers his question that he's in trouble, that he doesn't have eternal life abiding in him. The other interesting dynamic in the story is this. The Bible says that this lawyer who has now approached Jesus in this way, the other gospels call him a Pharisee. 
Another one calls him a scribe. And Jesus, I think it's in Mark, even calls him intelligent. (laughs) So this man is a Pharisee. He's a scribe. He's a lawyer and he's intelligent. And the Bible tells us that he is in this instant seeking to justify himself. And what that reveals to us is that he is effectively an opponent, not a proponent of Jesus and his ministry. He is not on Jesus' side. He is there with an ulterior motive to try to discredit the ministry of Jesus. He's in the camp of the opposition, the Pharisees. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Pharisees make a broad brush declarative statement concerning their opinion of Jesus Christ. They said, the Pharisees arguing with Jesus, say we not well or rightly that you are a Samaritan and that you have a devil or that you have a demon. In other words, the collective opinion that the Pharisaical mind had placed upon Jesus was that he was a Samaritan. They looked at him as an invalid, a half-breed Jew that had no claim to write even in Israel, much less to be claimed as the son of God. They called him, they saw him as a Samaritan. Interesting, isn't it? Because this man in his mind views Jesus in this way. And so what's the sum of what we have taking place in this interaction between the lawyer and Jesus? We have, first of all, a man, a lawyer, who is outside of the city of peace. He is not a citizen of heaven. He does not have eternal life abiding with him. He is effectively left for dead, condemned by the law itself, religion, the priest couldn't help him. Ritual, the Levite, couldn't help him. And where this man lies, unbeknownst even to himself, is on the side of a highway, wounded, unable to bring himself to safety. And unless somebody somehow comes into his situation and helps him, having mercy and compassion on him, this man is headed for a Christless eternity, separated from God in outer darkness forever. And what Jesus is saying to this man is that I am the Samaritan that is willing to come and meet you in that position where ritual and religion couldn't help you. And I am willing to have compassion upon you to the point where I will stop what I am doing, put you upon my own beast, bring you to the inn where you'll be taken care of, make sure on my own expense that you are completely healed and provided for all the way until I come back. And there will be a relationship and a friendship and you will live forever in a state of perpetual blown-mindedness knowing that I, a Samaritan, was willing to show mercy upon you. Now, I don't know how long or if ever this man ever came to the realization that that's exactly what's taking place within this interaction. Jesus is the Samaritan in that context. And you and I effectively joined this man as those that were outside of citizenship in the city of peace, left for dead on the side of the road with no ability to save ourselves. Religion couldn't help us. Ritual couldn't and wouldn't help us. But Jesus found each one of us and is willing to find those that lie there even to this day, sitting there in that state. And he is willing to do for us pouring oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, pouring wine, symbolic of his blood, into our wounds. And he's willing to clothe us in himself, welcome us into his family, and take care of us until he returns. I was the Samaritan, an opponent of Jesus for many years, and thank God that he was willing to have mercy upon me. And thank God that he's willing to have mercy upon those that are lost. Well, the chapter closes with this little uh, vignette about these two sisters. It says in verse 38, it says, Now it came to pass that as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered or troubled, confused, carried about, about much serving, and she came to him and she said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha. Now, whenever Jesus repeats your name, (laughs) it's either because you're in trouble or 
you're not listening and he has to say it twice. He says, you are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. So we come to the semi-famous passage uh, involving these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and the visit uh, that Jesus pays uh, to their house. We learn first of all of Martha. She's the one that's behind and responsible for the invitation, and we see that Jesus has accepted. And as a believer and one who wants to honor Jesus, she realizes the severity of that, that Jesus Christ is in her home, and she wants to show her love by her service. And so she immediately gets busy in the kitchen, cleaning the house up, making sure that things are right, preparing all of her uh, greatest dishes and all of that. And, and that's, that's her MO. It's her gift. She is a server and she shows love by serving. And then we meet her sister, Mary, who's the not so service driven sister. And it says that she also sat at Jesus' feet. And that word also is important because what it shows us is that she didn't just sit at Jesus' feet is that she served for a while, but then there came a point where she said, now it's time for me to go and listen to what this man is saying and, and, and absorb the true value of the fact that he's here sitting in, in our house. Again, even Martha, when she complains about Mary to Jesus, she says, um, it doesn't matter to you that my sister has left me. So, so Mary was serving, but now she's sitting. Well, Martha, it tells us that she was cumbered that she was troubled. The word cumbered in the Greek is the word paraspao, and it's where we get the word periscope or you know, something that you would kind of spin in a circle. And basically it means that she's being carried around. She spun out because of her much service. And the idea is that the tasks and the chores that she's given herself to are carrying her and managing her rather than she's carrying them and managing them. What Martha is, is she's a picture of doing without devotion. She's busy about the work of the Lord, but she's forgotten the Lord of the work. And the result of that is that Jesus looks at her when he finally gets her attention. And he says, because of that, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things. Because you're so bent on serving and running and perfecting, and you're not sitting at my feet and listening and receiving and absorbing and therefore, the result of that is that there's an anxiety that's within you and you're troubled about everything. There's no peace taking place within your life at all. And then Jesus gives the correction to her by saying this very simply. He says, there is one thing that is needful, one thing. And Mary has chosen that better part. And that is to sit at my feet and listen to my word. That is the one thing that the Son of God looks at the creation of God, you and I, and he says the one thing that is absolutely necessary for you in your lives <clears throat> is that you sit at my feet and listen to my word. Now, I know, and Jesus knows, that there are 1,000 other things that we have to do in the span of a day in order to keep the world moving and to keep our lives moving and to keep food on the table and all of that. And, and he's not negating any of that. He's not saying that all we should do is just one thing. We should take our Bible and get in our closet and wait till Jesus comes back. That's not the idea. What he's saying is that the most important foundational part of your life and of your days is to be sitting at my feet and hearing my word. And if you don't do that, then you're going to go about the 1,000 other things that you have to do in the course of the day and you're going to be busy doing those things and you might even be successful doing those things, but in your heart there's going to be this underlying feeling of unsettledness and that you're wasting your time. I'm doing all these things, but why am I doing all these things? I'm busy, but I'm not satisfied. And why is that the case? Why is that real? Now, conversely, if we do sit at Jesus' feet, and we allow him to be the source of strength and of leading for the things that we're doing throughout the day, those 1,000 other things, then we do the same things, but we do it with a sense of purpose. And we do it with a sense of direction. And we do it with a strength that comes from God where we feel as though he's carrying us through our day and that we're doing those things according to his will and not apart from his will. I want to read you uh, just a couple of um, quotes that I found recently that really um, ministered to me on this vein. The first one uh, is concerning Samuel Logan Brengel. And, and he was once asked 
uh, what are your most feared temptations, the most subtle, the most violent? And he answered this way. He said, for 30 years, I have only had one temptation that has given me any serious concern. But for 30 years, by God's grace, this one has been conquered. So no other has been able to penetrate my armor. But prior to 30 years ago, I used to frequently fall before this one temptation. And every time I fell before this one, I became instantly vulnerable to 10,000 others. And then he told them what it was. He said, it is the temptation to start my day for God before spending time in prayer and in the word of God. It's so incredibly true, isn't it? If you've ever experienced that within your life. Another one is um, a missionary, a famous missionary, Floyd Banker, um, who, who experienced a revival in his field of, of ministry. And um, he says this, he says, it so happened one morning that the alarm failed and we overslept, him and his wife. And we went out to our breakfast with the thought that we would find time later in the day for secret prayer, but the cares and burdens of our work pressed in and we forgot. The following morning, we arose in plenty of time for the prayer hour and each of us had the same experience. As we went our separate places of prayer, it was as if Christ was already there to welcome us, but with a sad countenance. He said, I have waited for you for 24 hours. Like a shock from heaven, this new truth was born in upon our minds. We had robbed him of fellowship, which he greatly enjoyed. Not only did we benefit from the secret prayer, but he also received benefit and great pleasure. And it's an amazing thing to realize that God delights in the time that we give to him each day as much as we need the time that we would give to him each day in prayer and in the word of God before we start the duties of our day. E.M. Bounds, the famous author on prayer, he's dead now, he said this. He said, the men and women who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. He who fritters away the early morning, its opportunity and freshness in other pursuits than seeking God's will make poor headway seeking him the rest of the day. If God is not first in our thought and efforts in the morning, he will be in the last place the remainder of the day. And there's such truth in these words and these testimonies of those that have gone before. And we see it here in the testimony of Mary and Martha and then in their subsequent experience with Jesus, one anxious and troubled and the other one at perfect rest. In the kingdom of God, sitting always comes before service. And that is that the service or the things that we do for God always must be born out of the fellowship and intimacy that we have in relationship to God. It can never be the other way around where our service is the foundation for our relationship. No, no, no. It's us in Jesus And as we're filled with him and as we know him and as his will and his spirit takes root in our lives for a day or for even a season of our lives, what we do then for him, and that includes everything, even our daily duties, all of it belongs to God. That all of those things are an outgrowth of the ministry that we receive as we sit in his presence and just receive simply from him. I love the verse in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. It's a famous verse. Uh, We've all read it constantly. It's, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And that verse gives to us a clear instruction that we're to wait upon the Lord, but it also gives us a clear illustration, that of an eagle. And if you've ever seen an eagle in the way that they soar, they do very little flapping. What an eagle will do is just sit upon the edge of its nest and it will just wait for the wind to come up the side of the cliff or the shelf where it has made its nest. And as the wind just hits that eagle just right, it doesn't flap at all, no strength, no energy. It just simply opens its wings, drops into flight, and it soars gracefully to the place where it is ultimately headed and where it's to go. And that's the picture that God gives of the type of life that you and I are to have in him. That if we start our day sitting before him, waiting upon him, drinking of him, being filled with him, then when it's time for the duties of the day to start, it's not a flapping, cumbered, carried about by the responsibilities, but it's simply dropping into flight and soaring through the things that God has given us, carried by his strength and his will and his power. That's what God wants for us. And we see it in the life of Jesus. He arose a great while before the day. And when do you ever in the ministry of Christ see him flustered? or see him frustrated, or see him not knowing what to do next, or spinning out in circles, or being ineffective with his time. 
It's a universal law for the believer that if you will give yourself to him, you will find that you have strength to do all that he gives for you to do. And so the worship team can come. The chapter begins with a call to serve and it ends with a call to the source. And in between, we see the reason why. That if he so loved us that he would give himself for us, then he's worthy to have all of what our lives consist of. Father, we thank you this evening for this word. We thank you, Lord, for the things that it teaches us. We thank you for how Jesus is revealed through this text. And Lord, it's our great privilege, Lord, to not just hear these things, but to know, Lord, that at the same time we're hearing them, you're making them a part of who we are. And so, Lord, we ask tonight that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us afresh. Lord, that you would take the things that apply most to us from this chapter that we read, and that, Lord, you would do deep heart surgery within us, and that we might be conformed more into the image of your Son. We thank you so much, Jesus, for the love that you have for us and for your willingness, Lord, to continually give, continually invest, continually preserve. So be with us, Lord, and as we leave from here tonight, may we go in a sense of awe and wonder at who you are and that we might live our lives completely for you. We pray you'd empower the rest of our week and that we might serve you and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.